Welcome to Fraud Busting. I'm Tracy Brown, the Fraud Busting Body Language Expert. I've spent the last 20 years reading people, uncovering secrets hidden in plain sight to find the truth in crimes, politics, and billion dollar business deals. It's time to dive in so you can beat the fraudsters at their own game and build your bottom line. Medical billing expert Barbara Kabuzi visits fraud busting today. She's one of the nation's leading experts on medical billing fraud. Get ready for your head to spin. She explains how medical billing really happens and why it's so ripe for mistakes and fraud. She talks about hallmarks of medical fraud, her work as an expert witness in federal court and some of the cases that she's worked on. As a bonus, she'll talk about how you can double check your medical bill and make sure you have the right insurance plan for your needs. Enjoy. Hi, it's Tracy. Just a quick thought. What would you do with $4? With that same money, a hacker can buy all of your info. I mean, social security number, credit card numbers, passwords, health insurance info, and yes, even your kids' information. Now, I've searched around on the dark web, and it's a good bet your info is out there for sale waiting to be used. If you're lucky, it'll just be a few charges to your credit card. But smart hackers are tapping into your credit to buy TVs, cars, houses, use your medical insurance, and even take over your banking and investment accounts, effectively kicking you out of your own accounts. You're the one that's going to be stuck with this big problem have mystery bills due, and need to get your money back while repairing your good credit. Now, the folks at ID Shield know this and have the solution. I've teamed up with them on their ID theft insurance. It's comprehensive, it's inexpensive, and it will let you rest easy. They will replace any money you lost, give you access to their team of licensed private investigators to do whatever it takes to repair your credit score. Yep, They'll do the heavy lifting and spend all the hours on the phone and the time it takes to restore your online reputation to pre-breach levels. You, your money, and your reputation are worth more than $4. Treat yourself like it. Go to fraud-busting.com slash IDShield to learn more and get covered today. It's fraud-busting.com slash IDShield. We'll see you on the protected side when you get there. Thanks for joining me here today on Fraud Busting. Yeah. So Barbara, tell us, tell everyone a little bit about you. I just found you to be fascinating uh, with what you do with your expert witness stuff and medical coding, which is a mystery to all of us. I think it, it impacts all of us as well. Make sure it's right. And you have a lot of expertise in fraud in that area. So let's start, just tell us about you. Well, I, um, I'm actually an industrial engineer with an MBA who um, uh, got into the whole medical billing and coding arena when I started a family because working in manufacturing, which is where I had worked, is no place to be a mom because you couldn't be sick, let alone your kids were sick. Yeah. So I wanted to start my own company and I did. I, uh, I, um, started a medical billing company back in 1991. Um, I uh, had learned working for another woman, uh, sort of uh, interning with her, 
learning the importance of coding and, and what was going on. And that was actually a very seminal time for coding because uh, CMS, uh, which is uh, who runs Medicare, Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services, and the AMA changed uh, a lot of the uh, key coding co uh, codes that are used for office visits and um, hospital visits. Um, they're called evaluation and management codes. And they were all changed in 1992 in terms of how physicians were required to document and uh, code those codes. And um, so I've worked in that area since 1991. I had a medical billing company through 2005 and um, I closed that and went into full-time consulting. And I've done some expert witness work, which is probably the most fun type of work that I do. Oh, wow. Okay. So tell us all about that because to be an expert witness, you actually do have to be an expert. <laughs> and <laughs> it isn't that way with all industries. However, with that one, you do. Yes. And you work a lot for the the doctor's side. And so they would be more like the defendant, right? Or tell me about that. How does it come together? Yeah, I work for the doctors, but I've also done some work actually for the insurance side um, or the um, federal government, the, uh, oh, uh, the um, assistant U.S. attorney I've done some work for. Um, I, I'm very specific in terms of, I like to defend doctors because I hate to see doctors get in trouble, but if the facts of the case fall out that the doctor's wrong and it's not defendable, um, I can't take the case. Uh -huh. um, so that's an important issue. So I have taken some cases where I've actually worked for the, uh, payer side. So uh -huh. in, in, um, healthcare, there are different areas where there are uh, cases. There could be civil cases and there can be criminal fraud cases. There can, also, there can be civil fraud, which is still with the um, federal government, and there can be criminal fraud. And then there are civil cases where uh, an insurance company may be suing a, 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 a provider of healthcare services for uh, an overpayment, which they refuse to give back. Or there could be a civil case where uh, a doctor is suing a billing company because uh, either they didn't do a good job uh, or um, when they tried to uh, uh, terminate the contract, they didn't get back their, their records. And so there's a suit involved in that. So there can be all kinds of different uh, types of civil suits that I've been involved in. Wow. I've also, right now I'm involved in a suit where uh, a physician is fighting for a higher fee uh, with a union. It's an out of network uh, situation where the doctor hasn't agreed ahead of time to a fee schedule. Um, and he had gotten an agreed upon fee from the union healthcare, and then he did the surgery. And then when he billed uh, and got paid, they didn't pay him the agreed upon uh, fee. Uh -huh. So I'm helping him with that. Oh, wow. Now I have a lot of questions. I have a lot of questions. So let's, let's start with the basics. Why is medical coding so hard? Like it is just, it is mind blowing. Uh, and like such that people like you have businesses doing this stuff. Like, what, how did it get this way? I mean, why, why, why can't we just get a 
price sheet when we go to the hospital. It, like it's a, it's a mystery how much we're going to pay. Well, imagine everything that is done um, that can be done in, in the body by a physician um, translated into a five digit code. Mm -hmm. um, it's complex. Yeah. What doctors do are complex. And so how do you um, equate that? You know, when, when something is done, it can be with or without fluoroscopy. It can be uh, with or without uh, re uh, reduction and there's open reduction and there's closed reduction. And there's all of all of these different ways that services are provided uh, to people needing healthcare services and to translate that into five digit codes with definitions is pretty com complicated. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Okay. But and, well, it's a necessary. Let, let me, let me, let me also clarify that AMA and CMS made the coding and the documentation for office visits and hospital visits and nursing home visits in 1992, they made it very complicated. Prior to 1992, a doctor would say, oh, I spent 15 uh, minutes on this visit. This is a 90060. And it was just based on time. And it was really easy. The doctor documented what they were taught in medical school in terms of uh, a, a SOAP note, it was called, subjective, objective, assessment and plan. And that's what was done. Then in 1992, they created these guidelines that are so complicated. You know, I explain it to people. I'm an industrial engineer. And when I explain it to people, their eyes glaze over. And so it's, for a doctor to really do it correctly, he would have to spend more time calculating the level of service that he provided a patient than the time he spent with the patient. And it really has gotten ridiculously complicated. So, for example, you go to a doctor's office, office, you know, the doctor has to document a history, an exam, and a medical decision making. But then the history has three components to it, history, present illness, a past family social history, and a review of systems. And so the level of the history is determined by how much of each of those three things that you document. And then you have to worry about the exam. And then the exam could be either organ systems and body areas, which is the 95 exam, or they came out with 97 exam, which are bullet points, which are more oriented toward specialty specific, complicated. And then you've got medical decision-making and medical decision-making are the management and diagnostic options that you have for the patient. And they assign points to it, um, whether like the patient is stable and improving or worsening you know, for each of their problems. And then you get points for each of the different types of testing that you're either interpreting and reviewing or ordering. And then the last thing is something called the table of risk. And it's the risk of morbidity and mortality. And you figure out where the patient's problem falls in the table of risk. And then based on those three things, you have to figure out what the medical decision-making is. And then based on the history, the exam and the medical decision-making determines the level of the visit that you have. Now, can you see My why? My head is spinning, Barbara. <laughs> I can't keep Right. So, so the probability of a doctor making a mistake mm -hmm. in a probability of a doctor picking a code that is not supported by their documentation 
is huge. Yeah. Just because it's so complicated. Yeah. So actually Medicare and the uh, Medicare started it and now the AMA has followed. In 2021, they're making it easier for the doctors in documentation and selection of the level uh-huh. for office and outpatient um, office visits or clinic visits and like outpatient clinic visits in a hospital. Okay. But they're only doing it for those. They're keeping this complex way of doing it for hospital visits and nursing home visits and everything else is still complicated. But they're changing as of January 1st, uh, 2021, they're, um, a doctor will be able to code based on time or a more complicated medical decision-making chart, but it won't matter how much of a history or exam is documented. He or she should be documenting a medically appropriate history and exam, just like they were taught in medical school. Back to that soap note. Uh huh. And then you can either calculate it based on medical decision-making or time. So they've, they're making office visits easier January 1st, but none of the other visits. Oh, man. <laughs> Just, I'm trying to soak that all in. Okay, so let's-, let's Now you know out. why, it's so hard. <laughs> okay, all right, let me take a deep breath, clear my mind, and <laughs> what is the craziest case you've worked on? So, so I, I, I think what we'd like to know is, what happened? Like, how do you prep to be an expert witness? How do you pick out fraud? And, uh, and then what happens when you're actually like on the stand, if, you, if it gets that far? Or does it end up in a, a negotiation or that, that kind of thing? Like, like, take us through the process. How's it all work? Well, on federal cases, um, where I'm brought in, they usually end up in court because um, by the time I'm brought in, it means the negotiations have failed. Um, usually once they get past the 50% mark uh, of what the uh, AUSA considers, the AUSA is assistant U.S. attorney, considers the work that they're going to do on it, they're, they're not going to back down on a case, even if you say, you really have no case here. Uh-huh. And um, so it goes to court even if you can show them that this, this is really not a case. Uh-huh. And so when I'm brought in, usually it's past that 50% mark and it's going to go to court. Okay. Um, and uh, I have to analyze the doctor's documentation. I have to analyze w- what they're claiming the doctor did wrong and determine if the doctor really did, did it wrong or if, um, if he or if he did it right, or did he make mistakes that look like they were just sort of mistakes because of the complexity of it, or were they mistakes because the doctor was trying to uh, uh, cheat the insurance companies? Mm-hmm. And, and, and you evaluate that and, and uh, come back you know, with, with your evaluation. So, um, so let me let me stop you there. How, how what, what would be a hallmark of, of fraud versus just making a mistake? Because I, I think I think that could really happen in a lot of businesses, right? So so what's your what's your take on that? Like what what are you looking for? Um, a hallmark of fraud is like uh, usually it's it's not as much these 
E&M office visits that are fraud, but um, more uh, procedures that cost more money. Okay. There was, I was not involved in this case, but there was a, an oncologist in Detroit who um, actually diagnosed patients with cancer who did not have cancer. Oh. And then he administered chemotherapy to these patients Oof. and charged the insurance companies because you make money on where you make money is on the administration of chemotherapy. Uh -huh. And so he, he basically uh, created a larger pool of patients for chemotherapy by telling these patients they had cancer. So imagine being told you had cancer when you really didn't. Oh, that would be horrible. And, and, like, right. how do you, and how then, you that out? And then the, they gave chemo to these patients. Oh. And you know, you know what chemo does to, oh, to a patient. It's your poison. Body. You're yeah. poisoning the patient. So mm -hmm. not only was he stealing from insurance companies, but he was he was committing assault mm -hmm. to these patients. So that's fraud. Now, now, how do you how do you pick it out? Like when you're going through paperwork or interviewing them, like what's what's the what's the how how you would find that is you would look at the pathology reports and uh -huh. say these patients don't have diagnoses of cancer. Uh -huh. Why are they there? There's no medical necessity documented here. Why are they getting chemotherapy? And why is the doctor? That's another code set, by the way. There's two code sets we work with. There's the procedures like I defined, and then there are diagnoses. And why are the ICD-10 diagnoses for malignancies being assigned to these patients when there's no proof of malignancies in their charts? Uh-huh. Oh, wow. So you have to go all the way back to their charts, to yes. like the whole thing, all the way through. Wow. Okay, so what's the craziest case you've been involved in? Um, there was a case where um, a doctor was actually brought to a rural area uh, by the hospital uh -huh. because there was no doctor of his specialty there, and the hospital really felt that there was a need for this uh, physician um, and surgeon. Um, there had been a group, that, uh, this was Elko, Nevada, the middle of nowhere, Nevada. Yeah, it is, nowhere. There, there, there had been a group uh, in Reno that would fly in on Mondays and do surgery and then fly home Monday night. But there was nobody there if the patients had complications or any other problems. And that was just not really the safe way to treat patients. And um, this was um, for otolaryngology, ENT, ears, nose, and throat. Okay. And a lot of these patients had ears, nose, and throat problems because it's a very dusty area. It's a gold mine. Uh, gold mining yeah. is, uh, it's just, it's very bad to the respiratory system. And so the hospital recruited this guy to come there and he opened up his practice and it caused this Reno practice who had been flying in once a week to actually lose volume. Uh -huh. And um, so this guy was providing really great service. He gave his, his uh, cell phone number. Actually, I think it was a beeper number back then. It was in early 2000s. Yeah, beepers. <laughs> um, his beeper number to his, his, his patients. Um, he was really um, a, a good, compassionate, available to his patients um, doctor. And um, all of a sudden, uh, the FBI walks into his office with uh, long guns and tells everyone to step away from their desks and um, takes everything. 
Uh-huh. And the next day in the uh, newspaper, local newspaper, it said, Dr. Kapener um, indicted for fraud or accused of fraud. Uh-huh. Uh, he wasn't quite indicted yet. Right. And he ended up getting indicted for over 50 counts of fraud. Uh, they accused him of billing for surgeries that he didn't do. Uh, they accused him of um, one, one interesting thing. You, you'll appreciate this. You know how you can't lie to the FBI. Oh, yeah. That's, they're they're going to pick you out fast. Right. But they asked him the question, did you commit fraud uh-huh. when they came to his office? And he said no. So they added to the indictment that he lied because they were so sure he committed fraud. He lied when he said he didn't commit fraud. Oh. So that was one of the counts. Uh huh. Wow. So, so was he found guilty actually, or how? How did you um, come into this? Uh, well, they brought me in because I'm an expert in coding for otolaryngology. Uh-huh. And so I reviewed his charts. And, and how you prove whether something is done is based on the documentation. A doctor uh-huh. dictates an operative note when they do surgery. And you uh, review that operative note and the coding should match the, the content of that operative note. Mm-hmm. And um, not only had he not uh, bills for services not rendered, there were actually services he performed that he didn't code for because uh, really? He, he really didn't know coding. Um, his uh, office manager who used to work for an optician, that was the most the medical experience in the town, um, didn't know how to code. He would send her to Medicare seminars, but that wasn't enough. And they actually missed coding for things to the tune, you know, the, the federal government said that he overcoded by a half a million dollars. Um, I found not only did he not overcode by half a million, but he undercoded by $200,000 in the period that was there. And the federal government, which I found amazing, was they were charging him based on his charges, not what he got paid. So there were cases where they said he um, overcharged a, a surgery uh, by $3,000 and he only got paid $1,800 for surgery. Uh-huh. Because a, a physician, you know, has fee, a fee schedule, sure, and then payers pay significantly less than the physician's fee schedule. Uh-huh. So when you're when you're going after a doctor, if they code wrong, you have to go after what they were paid, not what they um, what they charged, because that's that's not the money they got. They they got money based on the the fee schedule, not the uh, charges. So the half a million was based on charges, not payments. Wow. Um, so wouldn't the, like, the people who actually didn't get the surgery, wouldn't they be getting bills for insurance deductibles and things like that? Or what, how did, is, is that how this came out? Well, there's a, um, the doctor, when you do sinus surgeries, you do multiple you do work on multiple sinuses. Uh-huh. So they did, have, they did have surgeries done, but what the federal government said was you didn't perform a frontal sinusotomy. And so you did, you did the other surgeries, but you didn't perform a frontal sinusotomy and you billed for a frontal sinusotomy. But when you read the operative note, he did dictate that he did do a frontal sinusotomy. So they had no basis for that. One of the things they were basing it on was um, when a physician does uh, this kind of surgery, they take the contents from the sinuses and they put it on a pathology slide 
and it goes to pathology for evaluation. And pathology never mentioned that there was bone on the slide and the frontal sinuses, you have to take out some astidic bone. And so they said, because pathology never mentioned bone, that means he must have never gone into the uh, frontal sinuses, even though his operative note specifically said he went in the frontal sinuses. Oh my so, gosh, all, I don't know how you can keep track of all this. Okay, so was it slop or was it fraud? It was not fraud. It was actually slop by the, the, the pathologist, uh -huh. uh, not, not the, the surgeon uh -huh. that they were going after. And um, so to defend it, I mean, luckily these pathology slides are capped. This was years after. I mean, he didn't, it didn't even go to trial till four and a half years after he was indicted. Uh -huh, uh -huh. And um, so they had an independent pathologist review the slides and all of them but one had bone on them. Uh -huh. But the pathologist was lazy and never mentioned the bone. Wow. So just a lot of slop. So you got any other cases you worked on? I know you do. Yeah. Um, there, uh, there was a doctor actually who was guilty. He, uh -huh. he did things wrong, but he really didn't have intent. He, he was told by his billing company that it was okay to, to do this rule the way he did it. And this uh -huh. is a rule that has existed since 1998 and still today in 2020, which is 22 years after this rule was created in Medicare, uh -huh. doctors still get it wrong. Okay. And, and uh, the, the rule is called incident two. Okay. And it's, it's when you have a uh, advanced practice uh, practitioner, like uh, a nurse practitioner or a PA, a limited license practitioner, uh, a psychologist, performing services, uh -huh. you can bill it out under the doctor's um, ID number to, to Medicare or Medicaid. Uh -huh. Depends upon the state for Medicaid. You may not be able to do this. Every state is different, but this state you could. Um, you can bill it out under the doctor's ID number if certain conditions exist. Okay. One of them is that the doctor is in the office suite. Doctor doesn't have to be with the patient. The doctor's in the office suite. Okay. He can be playing uh, video games in his office, but he has to be in the office suite. Okay. Um, another thing is that um, it's, the problem is established and a doctor in the practice, not necessarily the doctor who's in the office suite, but one of the doctors in the practice has created a plan of care and the advanced practice practitioner is following that plan of care. So these are the rules that have existed for 22 years. And I will tell you today in 2020, 22 years later, still physicians get it wrong. They uh -huh. still mess up. But this doctor, it was, I don't know, uh, four or five years ago, his billing company told him he just had to be available by phone. Oh. And he actually provided a wonderful service. Uh-huh. Um, he... Uh, cared for patients in all over North Carolina, in rural areas, um, in uh, group homes. Uh, it was uh, mental health services. And basically these uh, uh, group homes and assisted living and nursing homes and things like that had no mental health uh, services available to them. Nobody came to them. 
and they begged this guy to provide the services. He couldn't cover it all. So he would have his, uh, he had working for him, uh, licensed clinical social workers and psychologists who would cover some of the uh, facilities and he covered other ones of the facilities. And they were so, so far apart, this guy had his pilot's license and he would actually fly between some of the locations. Huh, wow. It was so rural and apart. Uh-huh. And um, he thought, and his billing company said it was fine to bill all of this under his ID, but he wasn't in the suite. He wasn't there supervising mm-hmm. them. Uh-huh. And so, and then when he got paid, he would pay 8% of what he got paid to the billing company. Uh-huh. And he paid 80% to the advanced practice practitioner because they did the work. Sure. So all he had left for himself was 12% of what was paid. Mm-hmm. Okay? okay. So Medi- uh, the federal government, for Medicare, and the state of North Carolina went after him, and they wanted $15 million back. Oh, but there wasn't even $15 million to be had, was there? No, because but they were treating him like he had all the money. Mm-hmm. But he had paid out all that money. Uh-huh. And they also said the fact that he paid 80% to the uh, advanced practice practitioners that that was a violation of stark antitrust um, self-referral rules. And it's not, I mean, that's really up to a lawyer to uh, uh, make the case for that. Uh But I was able to make the case that it is a standard practice in medical practices to pay employees, whether they're doctors or advanced practice practitioners based on their volume of work. And that's what he was doing. He was paying them based on their volume of what they brought in. Uh-huh. And that was a standard practice. But they wanted all this money from him and he didn't have it. I mean, he was, and he was 67 years old. Uh-huh. Um, and because of this, he had made the decision to retire because uh-huh. he, he could not provide the services to all of these facilities. So now all these facilities have no more mental health providers to help them. And um, they, uh, uh, and they're asking for $15 million. So I was deposed uh-huh. by an attorney for um, uh, the federal government, uh, an assistant U.S. attorney, and an attorney for the state of North Carolina. And I was able to convince them that he, um, he did not have intent to steal. Uh-huh. His intent was to provide services to people and uh, to very underprivileged people who needed mental health services in North Carolina. Uh-huh. And um, after my deposition, the attorney told me they settled for something under five hundred thousand uh-huh. dollars. Which this doctor, I mean, he really didn't have that. That was his whole retirement. But he was able to come up with that money and make it go away. So wouldn't wouldn't the billing company be liable? I mean, I guess the buck stops with the doctor. What's the, how does that The billing company should have been liable, but Uh the federal government didn't want to go after the billing company. They wanted to go after the doctor because it's ultimately the doctor's responsibility. When a claim is submitted um, electronically, everything's done electronically now, but it used to be paper. Mm -hmm. And you have an electronic signature on a claim and it says, I verify that all of this is accurate. Mm -hmm. And it's under the doctor's ID number. And so it's his, uh, his responsibility. Wow. Responsibility. That's crazy. Okay. A lot of risk. 
Yeah, it is. Uh, well, you always hear about the risk of doctors and being a doctor and like, who would have thought that it would be in this area? So, okay, what what can we do? Because we've got, you know, uh, my listeners, they, they're interested in what they can do to protect themselves from, from fraud. What are your tips, Barb? Like, because you've been around the block in the medical community. What can we do to make sure things are, are right? When you get a, a bill from a medical practice, um, you should make sure that it's itemized um, uh-huh. or e- even worse is with, like if you're hospitalized is, is like the bill could be m- multiple pages, but you should get it itemized so that you see what you're paying for. Um, they shouldn't just give you a lump sum that, you know, they charged uh, $8,000 and your insurance paid $3,000, they, they wrote off 2000 and you owe the balance. No, you want to see what they're billing you for. Uh-huh. Um, if you think that it's, it's for services that were not provided or whatever, you should question it. Uh-huh. Now, lots of times patients will question something and there's definitely a reason and what was coded was correct and the patient is confused. Like for example, I said, I work a lot in otolaryngology. Uh-huh. Patients go to an otolaryngologist and uh, the doctors do a, either a nasal endoscopy. Oh, I'm sorry for that. Oh, don't worry. We're uh, all working at home. Do we need uh, to talk yeah. to them? I'll talk to them for you, Barb. Um, the, uh, the, 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 the doctors do a nasal endoscopy uh-huh. and all that is, is it's putting a fiber optic scope into your nose to look at your nose and sinuses, or they'll do a laryngoscopy, which is also, it goes in your nose and goes all the way down your throat. Uh-huh. And that's actually considered, even though it's a diagnostic procedure, it's treated as a surgery. Oh. And so you get the paperwork from your uh, insurance company and it'll say that the doctor did surgery on you. And you go, no, I went to the doctor's office and all he did was stick a thing down my nose. Uh-huh. And, he, and, and patients annoyed because they're saying, I didn't have surgery. Uh-huh. And, um, and, 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 but they did. They had uh, this, this endoscopy. Uh-huh. And, and so, um, so they had this endoscopy. And so you have to explain to them because there are procedures that'll be under a category of surgery. And the problem is, the problem is that the, um, some patients actually have a separate deductible for the category of surgery. So they they may have like a a $30 copay when they go to the doctor's office, but then if something's surgery, it goes against a deductible and they have to pay more out of pocket. And that's really annoying and they're upset, but they shouldn't be upset at the practice. They have to be upset at their insurance company. It's Uh how the insurance company uh, created the policy. It's, uh, there's nothing the practice can do. These procedures are under the surgery uh, category in how AMA has created all of the codes. Huh. So is there anything we should look for in our insurance policies? I mean, a lot of us have kind of a limited choice. Uh, yeah. like, like I'm on my husband's plan and it's like, do you want this deductible, this deductible, or this deductible? I mean, is there anything we can, we can look for in our, in our policies to make our lives easier or less expensive, but still have the quality we need? What do you think on that? Um, yeah, I, I like, uh, well, you have to know the difference between a copay and a coinsurance. 
copays are where you pay like a flat fee every time you go. Right. And coinsurance is where it's like you pay 20% to their 80%. Mm-hmm. And so, and usually that's after a deductible. Mm-hmm. So you have to look at what your policy is asking for. And like I said, sometimes there's a combination of both a copay and a coinsurance. Mm-hmm. And so when you're buying this insurance policy, it seems, wow, this is a great deal. And you don't realize that you've signed up for something that has you uh, paying out of pocket more because you're paying both a copay and a coinsurance depending upon the uh, type of uh, service that you're getting. Mm-hmm. Um, and it depends upon the person. Like, for example, my husband and I are both uh, uh, signing up for Medicare. And um, then we are looking at the Medigap policies and the uh, coverage for uh, Part D, which is the drugs. And mm-hmm we each have different needs. You know, he takes one medication mm-hmm. and it's a generic, it's relatively inexpensive. And so he, you know, for him, the, the part D um, is going to be, uh, we're going to buy the cheapest one because mm-hmm. there's no need to pay a lot of money for prescription drug coverage for him. And his Medigap, he barely ever goes to the doctor. I mean, he has this one problem. Um, if he goes to the doctor once or twice a year, that's a lot. So we're going to get the Medigap policy that's a little cheaper, but would cost us a little more out of pocket. Got it. Me, I go to the doctor a lot more. I'm diabetic. Uh-huh. I, I, ha- I have a lot more medications that I have to take. I try to keep myself healthy as I can, but it means that I see the doctor more often. Uh, it means I, I take a lot more drugs. And so for me, I'm actually buying a much more expensive policy for the coverage that I need. Uh-huh. So every person is different. Yeah. Wow. Well, there's so much to think about here. Oh my gosh. Um, I'm so glad. And I have to to tell you, my daughters, like when they change jobs or their Uh work changes their insurance, they both send it to me. These are the options. Which one should I choose? Yeah. So I mean, it's like, it is confusing and, and you need an expert to, to look at it, but I'm too expensive. You can't afford me. (laughs) <laughs> right. Oh, I imagine you are with expert witness that I, I've done some, uh, even when I work on investigations, we don't get to the deposition witness level. It's a lot of money. It's lawyer type, like good lawyer type money, you know? So, yeah. so yeah. it is clear that you deserve it because you have made my head just spin around. <laughs> so, so thank you so much for coming on the show today. I really, really love that you, that you did. It's always fun to talk about, uh, my cases. I, I love, um, I really love my expert witness work. I wish I could get more because it's, it's fun to defend. Um, I, like I said, I've also gone uh, and worked uh, for a payer against uh, a medical device company, uh, you know, because they were coding wrong. Oh, um, man. The world needs more barbs. <laughs> like, you know, like people who know what's going on. There are a lot of us. Uh, the Professional Association for Coders and Billers have over 200,000 members. Oh, cool. So, so we can find help if we, if we look for it, if we think we got a problem. There's find, resources out find there. Find your friend who works for a doctor's office doing coding and billing. Mm-hmm. They're going to know what to do. Oh, I love it. I love it. Thanks again, Barb. You are just fantastic. Thanks for joining me. Make sure you subscribe to this podcast, rate and review it. I'll see you next time.